Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, ladies and gentlemen, believe your eyes. Um, this edition of the Political Party podcast features an interview with Tony Blair. Someone who I've been trying to get on the show since I started doing it. Um, so it was a real treat. And uh, as you, uh, well, it goes without saying that booking a guest like that isn't easy. Um, but in my humble opinion, he was uh, <laughs> a very good guest, which shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone. Very funny, very thoughtful. Some of his stories, I mean, I just couldn't. Well, I could believe it, because I've seen him enough to know that he's a very funny person. But it was raucous at times. Um, so enjoy it. It's a riot. It, and it's just, in terms of an interview with someone who you don't... You, someone who has so much to contribute to an interview, obviously, because of their vast wealth of experience, but obviously specifically given the skills that Blair has and the ability that even his detractors would accept. He's a high-skilled politician, there's so much you want to pick his brains about. But also, he's someone you just want to have a lot of fun with and enjoy just the novelty of it. Um, so I think the show does both. There are some very serious, thoughtful and reflective moments in it. There are also bits in it that are, frankly, bonkers. Enjoy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a very special night indeed. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yeah. Welcome regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yeah. Excellent. Welcome first timers. Welcome all. Uh, we're a very special night. Now, uh, I won't reveal who the guest is yet, uh, although some of you might have guessed. I'll reveal it at the start of the second half. I don't want to start with sort of admin, but it's really important that no one sort of texts anyone or tweets. It's really important that until the show is over, sort of outside world doesn't find out. But I hope that's okay, because uh, we have a very special guest tonight. Uh, and I'm aware that some people still don't know who it is, so it's very exciting for all of us. Um, <laughs> I know who it is. It's not that, security's not that tight. I don't want to get into sound bites, you know, but I, I sort of feel the hand of history is on. <laughs> the geek tonight. Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm not giving anything away, so. <laughs> There we are. Got to get it out of the way before he comes in. So, uh, whoever it is, whoever it is, you know. Apparently, Ed Miliband's very sensitive about me doing that particular impression. So, uh, who knows? Uh, Miliband, of course, who I know you saw this week, won uh, Labour Parliamentarian of the Term. Uh, an award set. Yeah, what? He, uh, he I just wish I could have seen that acceptance speech. Um, I'd like to thank all the people who made this possible. Uh, the 11.5 million that didn't vote for me. <laughs> that allowed me to be here today. Uh, of course I'd like to thank my family, apart from one of them who would shut the fuck up. <laughs> with that little look at, I don't know what, something about Miliband, I only picked this up just before he left, but he would do something with his face, Miliband, where it was like only he could hear a phone going off in the room that no one else could hear. He'd go, look, Nick, that's a great question. 
God knows what else was going on over that side, but uh, we've had the, uh, the autumn statement today. Did anyone watch it? Yes! Very exciting, very exciting TV. <laughs> Excellent. Very passionate people watching the autumn statement. It wasn't so much um, Osborne's statement, although now we've, we've got the Northern Powerhouse. I don't know if people picked on the phrase the Midlands Engine. Uh, all of this delivered, of course, by a Southern Fairy, who was... Uh, <laughs> Talking a load of rubbish, but uh, John McDonnell, the uh, Shadow Chancellor, uh, who, who knows? Maybe he's the guest tonight, who knows? Uh, he, uh, at one point, quoted from Mao's Little Red Book. I don't know if people saw this. In an attempt to, to really grasp the centre ground. Uh, <laughs> reposition Labour as the party of sanity. Uh, the old communist leader got out his Little Red Book and started... The worst thing was, the quote from it, I don't know if anyone saw this, was the dullest quote from the Little Red Book, uh, and it was this. Uh, he, he quoted it to Osborne because we're doing new trade links with China. He said, we must learn to do economic work from all who know how, no matter who they are. We must esteem them as teachers, learning from them, respect them conscientiously, but we must not pretend to know what we do not know. That was it. <laughs> That was his big contribution. Now, I don't have uh, Mao's Little Red Book, but I was looking at my bookshelf. I, I read a bit about politics, I read widely. The only two uh, Red Books I could find, and this is no word of a lie on my bookshelf, were um, a book of Glasgow slang, uh, and uh, a friend got me this, Position of the Day, uh, an ironic. And oddly, in this uh, Little Red Book, there is a position called um, the Corbyn, where... <laughs> The leader, of the, the leader of the Labour Party assumes the position for five years and gets shafted for half a decade. Uh, <laughs> very sore. Um, very sore point. Um, but uh, there's, there's a lot of strange political stories knocking around at the moment. I don't know if anyone listens to John Pienaar's show on Radio 5 Live, but he regularly has MPs on, and he had a Tory MP called James Cleverly, and he asked him, they do this quick-fire round where he asks them if they've ever done drugs... Um, and if they've ever watched porn. Uh, and James cleverly said yes to both, and then Pienaar just sort of moved on and said, oh, what's the first book you read? I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> At least go into a little bit of detail. Make him, I would have loved it if John Pienaar would have gone, have you ever watched online porn? And he'd gone, oh, yeah, I have, yeah. But you know, I would have just gone, ugh. <laughs> you pervert. So what sort of stuff do you like? Cheerleaders, nice. Anyway, five to five. Here's Sally, traffic. <laughs> Well, anyway, it's given me an idea for what my first question tonight will be, so... Uh, <laughs> stay tuned for that. Um, <laughs> it's fascinating, Corbyn, because he uses social media a lot. He uses um, YouTube, and he does a weekly video. Has anyone seen these? Good. <laughs> I'm trying to sort of work on my Corbyn impression. It's quite, all I've got so far is the sort of... He looks out of one eye. I don't know if you noticed that about Corbyn. <laughs> Sniffs a lot. Does that a lot. And just lists stuff. So we say, Jeremy, um, what's Labour's plan for the economy? Well, look, I was, I was elected on a, a mandate of um, around sort of 600,000, many people in trade unions and, 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 and friendly societies, and, you know, people up and down the country, you know, nurses, teachers, doctors, police officers, uh, a lot of people in this country actually crying out for change. And he does this thing where, I know the voice isn't quite there yet, so I wasn't expecting anything. <laughs> I'm showing you the fucking workings, for God's sake. Ungrateful bunch. Uh, <laughs> But he does, if you watch this, I'm sure the first, he sniffs a lot, he snaps his chops, and the thing he does, he gets agitated for no reason, often in innocuous sentences. He goes, earlier in the week I was uh, in St. James's Park, and I, I saw a lot of people there, a lot of children playing, and, and they've got every right to. Uh, every right to in this country. Every right, and hopefully the government will recognise that. Um, well, that was a new bit. Um, <laughs> 
He, uh, which I've got every right to do. He, uh, he's, got a new, uh, he's got a new hobby as well. I don't know if people know what Jeremy Corbyn's hobby is. Taking photographs of drain covers. He revealed this on Lorraine Kelly's chat show. If you haven't seen the interview, watching a daytime TV presenter, she was like, have you got any hobbies, uh, Jeremy? And he goes, yeah, I, I like um, taking photos of, of drain covers. And Lorraine Kelly literally goes, Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, a lot of them are very different. You know, there's municipal ones in Glasgow. It tells you a lot about the areas and stuff like that. I mean, apparently he's got a really good camera. One of them's so strong that if you look at a drain hard enough, you can see his leadership disappearing down. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. My favourite story, actually, of the uh, uh, week was Boris Johnson doing a... Uh, online chat called Hashtag Ask Boris. I don't know if you've seen this. He does it, I think, every month where Twitter users can go on and with the Hashtag Ask Boris, Ask Boris various different questions. Um, now, a lot of them are sort of standard things. You know, what are you going to do about education and stuff like that? And they get standard answers. Not all of them they get used by the official um, Twitter feed of the mayor. But I, I trawled the Hashtag Ask Boris and got some of my favourite ones. None of these were used, but you can find these on Twitter. I picked out three or four of my favourites. One's questions that this man failed to answer. Camilla says, does the carpet match the curtains? <laughs> Hashtag ask Boris. I mean, this one. <laughs> this one's incredible. This is from Susie. Brace yourself for this. Have you ever been sucked off by a gerbil while a chinchilla tickled your balls? <laughs> Question two sorted for the second half. This is my favourite. Just direct. Hashtag ask Boris. Why are you such a cunt? That's from a Jay McDonnell in Westminster. Uh, hashtag kind of politics. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, a genuine star in the second half. For those of you that don't know who it is, uh, I, I can't wait to, uh, to announce it. And please, please, don't nip out in the break and ring anyone. It's really important that this stays here tonight. Afterwards, you find a tweet and text. As always, I'll be answering, uh, opening up the room to questions um, towards the end of the second half. So if you have got a question, I imagine a lot of people will have questions tonight. I'll try and get as many as possible. Um, and as always, I've been running this gig for three years now. You've been phenomenal audiences in terms of receiving people with respect and dignity and uh, dealing with people who you massively disagree with in a very, very respectful way. And that's important as tonight as it, as it always has been. So whatever your disagreements with people, please let's do it in a civil way because we have a very, very special guest. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, as always, you've been a phenomenal crowd. This is the last one of the year, so have a drink. It's sort of our Christmas party. Uh, and I will see you in the second... But not too much to drink. I don't want it to kick off. Um, <laughs> a few, uh, <laughs> few sore heads in here already. So just, in fact, if anything, just have a water and chill the fuck out. Um, I'll see you in the second half. Cheers. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you all for coming down uh, for the last show uh, of the year. Um, we've had guests from across uh, the political spectrum here, and they've always been received uh, with dignity, so I hope that uh, applies tonight. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm cool. I'm really cool. I'm cool. I'm cool. It's just, a, it's just any other night. Just any other night. It's just any other night. Um, I don't, really, I, sort of want to, I don't want to you know, not give an intro. I need, I need to give a proper intro. Um, we've had people at the start of their career, we've had people towards the end, uh, and tonight we have someone who... Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, 
someone who's had an amazing career. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't guessed it already, um, I hope you really enjoy this because this is a very special treat. Without a doubt, the most successful leader in the Labour Party's history. Yeah. Prime Minister of this country. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. You must have forgotten who I am. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, Tony, thank you very much for coming down. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, pleasure to be here. We're talking about um, Prime Minister's Question Time and uh, the autumn statement today. Um, was Prime Minister's Question Time something you ever... Was it something you enjoyed? No. <laughs> what, as Prime Minister or as Leader of the Opposition or... As, neither. It was the most um, nerve-wracking thing you ever did, because you were you were literally you were on the at-risk register for fifteen <laughs> to thirty minutes, and uh, you know I I never got more nervous than before I was doing it. So in the mornings I, I used to I, I would you just get up with this sort of nervous sense of nervous anxiety, and then the clock would just move slowly. So first of all, in Downing Street, move slowly. Then you go to the House of Commons. You used to get there about. 11.30, there's a room behind the House of Commons chamber where you'd go and sit, and it was like the sort of, you know, the room just by the execution <laughs> chamber. And <laughs> you'd go in there and you'd just wait until at three minutes to 12, my, uh, the private secretary, member of parliament, used to sort of look after the prime minister. He would always come into my room and he'd throw the doors open theatrically and say, prime minister, a grateful nation awaits you. <laughs> 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 you go down, and then you just have to gear yourself up. But you always seemed fairly pumped up for it. Like as far as modern uh, exponents of promises, question times go, you always seemed fairly in command of it. It never seemed to daunt you. I mean, when you look at some of the people that have followed you, both on the government and the opposition side, I mean, how do you rate some of their performances? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really. <laughs> I mean, to, to be frank, I've only got sympathy for anyone doing it. So no matter what I feel about anybody who's doing it, when I'm looking at them doing it, whether the leader of the opposition or the prime minister, I'm thinking, thank God, that's not me. Um, yeah, no, it was really tough. But I, I learned, it was funny, I learned things to do to try and make it get better, as it were. Okay? So um, one of the things that, I mean, sorry, it's more than you need to know, really. But so in the morning... Because you were so nervous, if you weren't careful, you didn't eat. And if you didn't eat, your energy levels would fall. And so you go in at midday, and actually these, these types of jousts, you know, when you're really under pressure like that, they're quite, you, you it requires a lot of energy. So if you weren't careful, you know, the first 10 minutes might be okay, and then the last 20 would be a disaster. So I ended up having to make myself eat properly in the morning, and then I would have a, a banana just before I go into the chamber. Yep, I know, well, there it is. <laughs> but actually, it would make a difference. It would, it would make a difference, because you would then, you could just keep that energy going yeah. um, until, you, until you escaped. But, uh, um, but, I mean, it was just... And the, the amazing thing about it was that it didn't... You know, you could go in there thinking, today's going to be easy. And then you come out half an hour later. And, you know, my staff were, were not of the yes men or women variety. Mm. So, 
you know, the kindest of them would say, uh, well, that, 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 um, that, uh, that, 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 wasn't, uh, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> and the others would say, that was real shit. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, it, it's still, even now, uh, a few minutes before 12, wherever I am in the world today, like you know, today on a Wednesday, I get a little chill at the back of the neck. Have a banana and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that type of thing. I'll, I'll do a similar thing to Greg's pasties before gigs. Sort of... <laughs> yeah, that's the sort of nutrition that I need. Um, in terms of some of the... Because I went to see Promises Question Time quite a few times when you did it, and I always thought William Haig was the the best adversary you had across there. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, he was very, very good. He, he, he used to... In fact, what I tried to do, always do was work out what was the central strength and central weakness of your, your opponent. So you, you've got to kind of focus on that. Um, and the fact is he was very quick and very funny, very sharp. And I, in the end, had to try and turn that against him by saying the guy can make jokes but he can't make the judgments, right? So you just have to try and work out how you make him inhibited <laughs> from, from making the jokes in the chamber. It didn't always work, to be honest, but because um, he, he was very good. But I remember one time when I was doing the statement, we, we had this, this idea, we had this idea for a time that we would, in the interest of government transparency, I mean, that, those concepts didn't last long, but, <laughs> but in the interest... <laughs> You know, this was in the utopian idealism phase of the government. So, so we're going to be transparent about this. So we're going to publish all the great things the government's done in the last year. And so we put out this, this, this document with, uh, with all these great achievements. You know, we've built this, we've just done that, we've given this, and, you know. And um, so he gets up and he says to me, um, I notice on, I notice on page 22, um, one of your achievements is the building of the Sheffield Community Centre at such and such. I said, where is it? Because <laughs> I have some people go around there today and they can't find it. <laughs> and they just sat down, you know, so you... I was... Well... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was that, at that point you sort of look at the box, you know, the civil servant's box over there, and they're all like, mm. <laughs> Yeah, so that wasn't good. I remember re I read an interview with him recently where he said you would have a folder that was listed alphabetically, and he would deliberately ask you questions at different ends of the alphabet. So he said, I'd ask my first question on drugs, the second question on zoos. Get you to deliberately flick through, is that true? I don't know. <laughs> I think, um, no, his, 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 his quality was the you know, really sharp wit. So you said you would assess the strengths and weaknesses of the people you're up against. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's just go through some of the people that have done it since. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're all very strong and very good. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I want to say. So what would you say David Cameron's strengths and weaknesses are at the dispatch box? Um, actually, at the beginning, when I was prime minister, he was leader of the opposition, and they were shifting their positions a lot. We were able to pin quite a lot on on the Tories as sort of flip flopping and so on. But I don't. I, I don't. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to circumvent this question by saying I don't watch it a lot now. <laughs> well, I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
By the way, is it, I haven't seen you do a, a David Cameron impression. No, 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 I don't think that's true. You know, I, I think... <laughs> yeah, they, he's got the braying Cameron, where he goes, come on, Mr. Speaker, they've gone, frankly, from FFA, full fiscal autonomy, to FFS, full fiscal shambles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel, then? Because a lot of people say he's the heir to Blair. How do you feel when people start describing him as that? Um, I don't know, really. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> The, the most important thing is whether, if you've done something that you think is right in government and someone tries to emulate it, you usually think that's, that, that, that's good rather than bad. Um, and look, there is a certain, one of the things that is difficult for people to understand about politics today, where political parties tend to get more partisan, as actually the, the market and ideas in politics gets, crosses the boundaries far more. So... I don't think it's bad or wrong if there are certain things that one government of one particular color does and another government takes them on or develops them. In fact, it would be actually unfortunate for the country if you just got a violent change of direction every time a new government comes in. And so when we came in, you know, very deliberately, we kept some of the conservative reforms, but we changed other things. You know, and I think that's a better rhythm for, for government. And he does that in some of the reforms that have been made and some of the positions. Do you think that's a, a popular view in the Labour Party at the moment? <laughs> well, not, <laughs> not, not thunderously, no. Uh, um, no, but, but there it is. I mean, it's... it's yeah, there it is, in fact. <laughs> I've got to ask you about Corbyn, because it, uh, it strikes me as that you're two sort of diametrically opposed politicians. Although, in one regard, you're both known for being courteous and, and decent. Um, Apart from that, there's, there's very little you have in common. And I was struck by the photo of you both at the Cenotaph the other, the other weekend. And I just thought, when you're in a position like that, when you're so close to someone that has almost become an adversary... Adversary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just saw it. Um, did you have any small talk with him? Did you go, right? Well, you don't really at the Cenotaph, no. to be honest. <laughs> um, no, look, it's a... Yeah, fair point, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, look, it's a different... It's, there's a concept of the Labour Party as an instrument of government, and my ambition was always to take the Labour Party. It never won two consecutive full terms before. And my view is if you want to be a government that really changes the country, you've got to govern for a prolonged period of time. Um, so the ambition was always not just to get into government and win one term in order to give the Tories a rest from, <laughs> give them a breather from governing, but actually to get into power and establish ourselves as a credible party of government. And, you know, where, I mean, Jeremy all through that time obviously was a, was a backbencher, but he was a backbencher in a sense who didn't want to become a, a frontbencher, which is perfectly fair enough, but it's a different type of politics. It doesn't mean to say he believes or I believe in the aims of the Labour Party any less, but it's, it's, if you, if you believe that, that the Labour Party was created as an instrument of government, then you need to adopt the positions and the strategy to put you in government. Because a lot of people at the moment seem to think that is a fundamental compromise of what the Labour Party actually is. And that's, that seems to be a major problem for the Labour Party at the moment. Well, I've never understood this, this notion that you compromise your principles if you seek power to implement them. Um, because, frankly, without implementing them, and you have to have power to do that, then what are they? I mean, they're just empty sentiment. 
So, you know, you can, you can say it's terrible the Tories are doing this and cutting that and, you know, they're not empowering these people and they're grinding down those people. But if you don't have the, the discipline and the, you know, the, the imagination, the creativity to get yourself in the position where you can win an election and govern the country, then you can't do anything. So, you know, when we were in government and put a massive amount of public investment into public services, we did reforms as well there, we did things like the minimum wage. I was just reflecting the other day on international development and the fact that we created a Department of International Development, probably the biggest thought leader today in development worldwide. And you see amazing work being done by the UK and the UK government in in Africa and the poorest parts of the world as a result, but you can't do any of that unless you're in power. So I was never, it always used to frustrate me in, in the Labour Party in the 80s when you know, people would kind of say, well, let's pass another resolution about that. And I'd say, yeah, fine, but I mean, you know, <laughs> it doesn't actually affect anything. And I, I remember when I first took over leader, the leadership of the Labour Party and I just, I went to one of my, in fact, I think it was actually in the leadership campaign, I went to a party meeting and uh, someone got up and, and she said to me, um, you know, this was after we lost another election and she said to me, uh, you know, Tony, the, the British people have voted against the Labour Party now four times in a row. What on earth is wrong with them? How <laughs> <laughs> is Claire Shaw? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, it's always frustrated me this, this, this idea because if you don't you see because actually getting into power is not easy right? and you've got to have discipline and you've got to have focus and you, and you do have to have the imagination and the vision to be able to create a really strong political coalition in the country because you know it's always I mean I remember when I was growing up in the Labour Party in the in the um, late 70s and, and early 80s when you know back then uh, you had this huge sort of ultra left tide in the Labour Party and you know I always think the best educators in life are failure and humiliation um, you know you learn far more from those than you ever do from your your successes but I remember going out to canvas in Hackney, because the Hackney Labour Party, we started this great campaign at the time about um, um, Hackney becoming a nuclear weapons-free zone. A pledge delivered. You better get to know all this, because that's... <laughs> yes, that's where we're going, but anyway. <laughs> and I remember knocking on this door, and Hackney just woof, comes to my life, says, yeah? <laughs> I said, um, I'm here from the, the Hackney Labour Party and, um, you know, we're, we're campaigning for a, a nuclear-free Hackney. <laughs> Come in here, son. Come in here. <laughs> she takes me in and she shows me this whole uh, sort of rat droppings, frankly, around the, <laughs> the floor. And she says, I've got rats in here. You get rid of my rats, I'll get rid of your nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of shuffled out, but uh, <laughs> but you know, so so but the, the whole idea at that, that time was that it didn't really matter if you won power or not. What mattered was that you you know you you, you kind of felt good about what you were saying about the Tories. But it, that was always 
for me, very unsatisfying and also, um, in a way, it, it, you know, you felt a, a betrayal of the people you were trying to help um, because you've just sat there in, in opposition impotently as others made changes. But what do you say to those people on the left and, and a lot of those sort of soft Labour members who did vote for Jeremy Corbyn who said that's all well and good, happy to sort of be in power, but for some people perhaps they felt that New Labour compromised too much in order to, to, to find power, perhaps some of your harsher critics might say for its own sake. Yeah, but I think, you see, the whole idea about you sacrifice your principle to get into power, the, you, if, if you're in that mindset, you're in the wrong place, really. Because the reason why I thought it was important we didn't just put money into public services but reformed them was not as a compromise of my principles, but as a means of implementing my principles. So for me, the fact that there weren't enough good London schools people to send their kids to that meant that those people who could afford to could send them privately and those people who couldn't had to put up with crap education. Now the biggest social injustice you can give a child is a poor education in today's world. So if you're not, you know, if you don't, if you're not also prepared to accept that that school's baton has got to be changed and there's got to be reform, then you're not in the serious business of changing people's lives. And that's not a compromise of your principles because uh, otherwise you confuse principles with policies that may have been applicable at one stage of development but have to be adjusted and amended for, for another stage. So in the post-1945 Labour government, everyone thought at that time, well, the state is the repository of people's hopes and the state will take care of you. Right? But the world in which you live today, people are much more assertive. They want power in their own hands. And the purpose of the state should be strategic and empowering, not controlling. Now, that's not... I don't regard that as a compromise with the principle of social justice. I just think it's a better way of getting there. So using technology. So perhaps, you know, to sum up in a phrase, sort of, you know, socialism with iPads. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that, no, I, 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 I read that. And actually, there were bits of that speech, in fact, that were, um, the, the John McDonald speech, that were, quite interesting, and I can see, you know, where he's trying to get to with it, but, you know, the whole point about the technology is that it puts power in the hands of individuals. So when you're saying, for example, that you may be able to change the way children are educated through technology, or you're able to say, right, we can transform how we do diagnosis within the health service through technology, that is not just, you know, ordering the machines, it's also changing the way of working. Right? It may be changing the structure of how you deliver healthcare. And sometimes that will mean saying to some of the, the producer interests within these services, well, we want, in the interests of the consumer of the, of the service, the public, the patient or the pupil, we need to change the way that that's run. And so it's not enough to, to say, well, look, let's have socialism with iPads. It's not, you, what you need to do is to say, how can technology transform society? Right? And how can we be the people who understand these changes that technology can bring about and are there to make them work for people? But that requires change and reform. It doesn't just require us to keep systems as they are. You know, in the work I do in different parts of the world, I'm always saying, you know, your presidents and prime ministers will say to you, you know, when are we going to get an education system or a healthcare system or a welfare system like, you know, the West? And I say, don't ask yourself that question. Say, given what we know today, and the, what we know about the legacy of these Western systems, how can we use the advantages, for example, of technology, 
to get to a different and better place in the way we develop our services. So this is, this is the, the, otherwise what the left becomes is, is a, the left just becomes another form of conservatism, right? We're just not gonna change. You know, that's the way it's been done, uh, maybe, but maybe it should be done differently. And in today's world where everybody in the way they live their lives is undergoing constant change and adjustment. You know, when I was growing up and, and in, in, the, in the very old days when I was growing up and, you know, people would get the same job and maybe hold it for 40 years and retire and it'd be a classic nine to five job. You try your best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it wasn't quite good enough. <laughs> but the world's changed. I, you know, I, I accept the point you're saying. I mean, when do you have any sort of contact at all with Jeremy Corbyn or John McDonald? Do you ever bump into each other at things? And what's the relationship like if you do? <laughs> not, not really. No. Um, but you know, look, I'm not. I don't. By the way, I never either bear a grudge or or think the politics should descend to being personally unpleasant about people. And as you say, Jeremy Corbyn's perfectly nice guy to me. It's just that there is a profound disagreement, um, both about what the purpose of the Labour Party is and and um, how how that purpose is is implemented. What about the style of leadership then? Because I think part of the reaction to Corbyn is the fact that. In a sort of bizarre way, his lack of charisma has become an asset. Do you think that charisma is important for a leader, that personality matters? I think personality does matter, but I think charisma is an overdone concept in the sense that you can get leaders that are immensely effective that aren't, as you might say, classically charismatic. Um, you know, what's important for a leader to be able to do, and this is true whether you're a leader of a political party or a, a company or a community centre, um, or a football team, you know, you've got to be able to take decisions and to give people a sense of direction, and you've got to persuade people to follow, um, and that's what it's about. Now, you know, people with what we classically call charisma can often do that, but I've known, you know, great leaders of, of, of businesses and and um, even countries who wouldn't have classic charisma in that way, but are incredibly effective. You had an interesting introduction to politics, didn't you? you? You arrived at it relatively late for someone who became a prime minister. And a lot of people know that you were in a band when you were at university called Ugly Rumours that involved you doing a, a Mick Jagger impression. Um, well, do you still impression. ever do that at home? <laughs> um, only in the privacy of my own. <laughs> uh, no, no I, I, I always say, actually, that um, I was really lucky that social media didn't <laughs> exist at that time because the pictures, there are a few pictures and they're pretty bad, but the, um, the, the, the recordings would have finished me. <laughs> you know, was, um, but it wasn't just music, was it? You, well, what else was there? <laughs> but you did stand-up when you were in there. I, d I did. <laughs> so what sort of stuff? <laughs> it, was, it was actually one of the great lessons I, I learned about um, at a number of different levels. So I, I did these reviews and, and in which I did stand-up. And, you know, they fitted into two categories, really. There was the first lot of them that were really dire. And then I did actually learn and got a bit better at it. But I, I'll never forget, 
in a sort of, it was like a room like this and doing a, a stand-up routine like you were doing at the beginning, except with the absence of laughter. <laughs> <laughs> and dying. <laughs> terrible obsessive. Honestly, even today, I promise you, even today, I will just occasionally... Oh my God, I you know, it was just terrible. It was terrible, but I learned a number of things. So I learned with, with material that you have, you've got to be really, you've got to be ruthless, right? Mm. You kind of quite, you quite like it, but you've tried it out and they haven't laughed. You talk you know, to me. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they haven't laughed. You've got to be ruthless enough not to do it again, right? Because if they didn't laugh the first time, they're unlikely to laugh the second. And just, you know, how you structure things and, you know, and I had to relearn all of that when it came to public speaking, which, uh, which it took me a long time to... I mean, I always say to people going into politics, I mean, my first public speech was actually when I was the by-election candidate in Beaconsfield in May 1982. And I was asked to go and give a speech in, in this big hall, which sat about 1,500 people. And I spent, honestly, I spent a week writing the speech. I mean, I was so sort of focused on it. And I went into the hall, and there was, there was seating for 1,500, and there were actually six people. <laughs> there were six people in the front row, just like that. And I didn't have the, you know, I didn't have the confidence or anything to be flexible enough to put my speech away. So I just kind of read it. You <laughs> see so many people here today. Right. <laughs> Please <laughs> calm down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but all I all I remember is after about twenty minutes, just glancing up and. Person number six at the end of the road fallen fast asleep. <laughs> <laughs> thought, oh my god, I'm never going to do this. So, when you were doing stand up then, what sort of material would you do? Because everyone can remember some of their early material. Oh god, I did some terrible stuff. No, it's too embarrassing. Uh, I used to do skits on TV shows. <laughs> I did skits on TV shows, you know. Um, did one on Star Trek that was. <laughs> It was memorably awful. Uh, and then I did, I actually, we did, we did some material and did some, some, some actual sort of jokes, but they were, ah, they just weren't funny enough, really. So what, what, what was the subject matter? So TV skits, and then what would, what would be in your subject? Oh, any of the jokes, you know, they'd be the type of jokes you'd tell, I guess, but back for that time, but, you know, yeah. so they're obviously a lot cleaner. <laughs> that was back in the day. Do you remember any specific bits of material? Well, I, <laughs> Actually, the truth is, I do remember a lot of the material, but I am not going to disclose it. Just one bit. Just uh, one bit. Give no, no I gave you Star Trek. That's enough. <laughs> so what did that involve? Would you dress up? Or? Uh, <laughs> I've got a terrible feeling I was a character called Captain Kink. <laughs> You're not getting any more like that. <laughs> that rich vein of embarrassment, yeah. What was it, what was it kind of like a saucy take on the <laughs> no, no, as I say, I mean, if there'd been social media, I mean, can you imagine? They just put that on there as the Tory party political broadcast and that would be it. <laughs> me off and put in Jeremy. <laughs> so Captain Kink would sort of what? <laughs> 
Do some right, stuff there. Time to move on. <laughs> but would you wear like a thing? <laughs> that's, that's incredible. So, do you, I mean, you obviously, I understand why you don't want to sort of. Yeah. And I, and I you know, I, this yeah. material I've had in the. Well, material I've got now that machine. Um, but do you still occasionally sort of drift off and remember stuff like that? No, I do occasionally uh, think of, of, you know, what what would be amusing sketches today and things. Because, you, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're that way inclined to uh, you do. But, no, I, I think we should move on, really. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll make other embarrassing revelations to you. It was always... I remember reading Alistair Campbell's book, and he, he said that you were a very good mimic, and that you were good at sort of doing certain accents and voices. Were there any of your colleagues that you could sort of take off? Um, there were, yeah, there were, there were a few, but it was the, the foreign leaders were, were more, <laughs> more, more King Street, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's because the, the the thing is about the 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 meetings that you have at an international level. I mean, obviously, the the subject matter is incredibly serious, um, but you know, they they also can be, I mean, they can be rather tedious at a certain level and therefore your mind drifts to <laughs> to looking at your yeah. colleagues and analyse them and think about them. So who are the ones, because Berlusconi you had a, a level of relationship with, you know, not in the sort of, not in the Captain King sort of way. <laughs> He'd have been perfect for that sketch, actually. Well, he's, I mean, but he, he used to make the meetings lively. I mean, that's what would be uh, <laughs> interesting about it. And, um, and also, you know, it, it's... I, I remember once we, we did a... We had some big European debate, and it was about the creation of something called the European Food Standards Agency. And we started off, which is obviously to do with food safety and so on, and... And so we started off with this debate, and Sylvia hadn't come in. So he comes in late, and he hears this thing about food standards. And we were suggesting setting this thing up in Finland. So his hand goes up. No, 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 it's not true. Finland, no. <laughs> <laughs> we have the mortadella, we have the parmigiana, we have the pasta, we have the montepulciano. <laughs> So, no, Sylvia, it's about food safety. It's not. I mean, so he had thought this was about cuisine, <laughs> and couldn't believe we were about to set this thing up in in uh, in Finland, um, which actually became because uh, a little bit later, when the when we did the Olympic bid mm. in in two thousand and five, one of the the things that actually allowed us to get the Olympic bid was a very close vote. And there were two things, actually. One were, was, I think, um, Italy voted with us, which was important. I don't know, but I think they did. Um, but the other thing was, was that we had this, this great sort of meeting in Singapore where we all came to lobby for, for our respective countries. And as you remember, London was against Paris. And Jacques Chirac, who was the president of France, turned up and lobbied, obviously, strongly for Paris. But in the course of which, whilst he was sort of making derogatory comments about London, said about Britain, that you can't go to Britain because their food is terrible. It's as, almost as bad as Finland. <laughs> so anyway, I then got the Finnish president on the phone <laughs> saying, you know, my country has been insulted by this. <laughs> uh, and 
you know, I was kind of sitting there thinking, yeah, well, I mean, but honestly, didn't I? But anyway, I said, no, I think it's monstrous. This is uh, this actually, we are in full solidarity with the Finnish people. Uh, <laughs> quite important. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, your relationship with George W. Bush always struck me as... And I mean this great respect, quite a comical relationship. Two quite, you know, two funny people in in high-powered positions. I imagine it looked like, as well as being very serious, and it was a very serious time, obviously, actually your personal relationship was very good and then it it felt quite informal. Yeah, well, he he was completely informal as a a person. And he was also, look, it was very hard task when you um, support President Bush in certain quarters, obviously. Um, but uh, he was somebody who, I mean, I felt I was knew if he gave an undertaking to do something, it, 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 it would be done. And he was, he was in a way, you know, what people always say they want, but then are terrified when they get, which is someone who actually just speaks his mind. Um, and I remember the very first G8 um, summit that he did when he when he was president, and I was I, I'd already been prime minister um, a, a few years by then, and we were all sitting around at these G8 summits. You've got the the G8 countries, but you've also obviously got um, the president of the European Union, whichever country has the presidency at that time. So the presidency was was held by Belgium at the time, and I remember. Um, um, uh, George came in literally right on on time, and <clears throat> we had a debate about climate change. And the Belgian Prime Minister um, went into this great um, rhetorical flourish about how you know America had to take a lead on climate change, and thought this was the right thing for President Bush to do at the beginning of his presidency, and the best way to do this was to triple gasoline prices um, in America, which would make him, you know, a hero in many parts of uh, (laughs) Belgium. (laughs) (laughs) And George Zellino says, uh, who in the hell is this guy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's... He said that a lot about, about a lot of <laughs> He said he's the prime. He's the, I said he's the, he's the he's the prime minister of Belgium. He said Belgium's not a member of the G8. <laughs> I said, 
no, no, but, but um, Belgium's got the presidency of the EU. He said to me, you got the Belgians running Europe? <laughs> this was... <laughs> so, you know, most leaders would have pretended that they knew everything that was happening there. Because but... <laughs> I remember, I think the first joint press conference, or one of the first joint press conferences you did, when they asked, you know, what's this... Labour Prime Minister having um, come on with a Republican president. I think he said, we both use Colgate. Does <laughs> <laughs> he both use the same toothpaste? Yeah, that was a stunner. That was a... <laughs> I can truly say there aren't many occasions... I, I mean, I, I literally I remember him saying that and thinking, what the hell do I say? <laughs> and what does it mean? <laughs> it just sort of suggested that you saw yeah, both put was... on at the same time and sort of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that was a worry, so, uh, yeah, no, that was, that was, anyway. What, what was your initial reaction when he won? Because obviously you had a very, very close relationship with Bill Clinton. You know now Gore through that relationship. Ideologically, you were closer to Gore. Bush wins. A lot of the people in the Labour Party in this country thought, bloody hell, this is, this is awful. What was your initial reaction when you saw the Bush had won? Well, my initial reaction was obviously I'd, I'd, you know, I'm a Democrat in that sense, so I wanted, I was wanting Gore to... To, to win, so, um, but I was, uh, you, you have to adjust fast and realize it's the President of the United States of America, it's the job of the British Prime Minister to have a good and strong relationship, because there are so many things that go on in the world in which that relationship matters, and where Britain increases its influence and its power if that relationship is strong. So, I mean, frankly, you know, there's not much point once the, 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 the decision was taken, and if you remember, there was all that uncertainty before it, uh, it, it finally emerged. Then, you know, I, I made it my uh, business to get over and see him as fast as possible and try and establish working relationship. Because so I was always rumoured when he <coughs> stood against Kerry in his second that he was sort of actually privately rooting for or even maybe publicly sort of rooting for him to win the second time. No, I mean, I, I, was, I kept right out of the election. Actually, I have a great respect for John Kerry, and I, I would never hide the fact, and I never do when I'm in the US, I'm, you know, I'm on the Democrat side. Um, but obviously we'd established a very close working relationship, and it's, it's, never a, it's never a smart idea to get into somebody else's politics in that, in that way. Um, uh, you know, if you're, especially when it's a presidential campaign, you know, whoever emerges from it, you're gonna end up having to, to work with. And it's a, it's a, one of the things that's interesting about I always think about politics at that very high level, is that it's no different from politics at the very lowest level. In other words, it's about... Bollards. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? Speed humps, um, traffic cones and all that. I mean, that's politics no, at the low level. Right, but it's, it's, the same, it's the same chemistry or lack of it amongst people. It's the same, you know, if you're in a meeting, even if you're the community centre committee that's running it, uh, you know, it's the same dynamic. There's the person that always doesn't know when to shut up. There's the person who's <laughs> aggressive. There's the person who sits quiet. And there's the person who is influential that you need to get to know and to, to work with if you want to influence the outcome. And it's literally the same at an international level. And, you know, the personal relationships between leaders are really, really important. And, you know, I would say it's, it's also very much like friendships. So one thing that I always was really important with the leaders I was working with, whether the presidents of the United States or, um, you know, leaders in Europe, is you've got to s stick by them in difficult times. 
because that's when the friendship or the partnership is forged. And so if you're prepared when things are really difficult, and for example, when President Clinton was in difficulty, I was always absolutely 100%. I mean, I was totally committed to him as an individual and as a person, but it was also important because that's the moment at which that relationship then consolidates. And when you need something for your country and you're approaching that person, then you're approaching them in a frame of mind where the person's wanting to you know, reach back out to you. And that's really important. That you, you, One of the things about politics as well, I think, is that people do respect you if you stick by what you believe in. You know, even if they don't necessarily agree with it, they prefer to see a leader stand up. And I know this is what I, what I feel whenever I'm seeing a politician on the TV, if I think... Any in particular? Um, no, but I think it's... It, there's nowhere in particular I would say that about, but I think when you... You know, I always say the time you should trust the politician most is when they're telling you what you least want to hear. Because unless they're an idiot, they worked out what you want to hear, but they're deciding to tell you something different. Whereas a lot of what passes for sort of authenticity in politics is people just telling people what they want to hear, which is <laughs> the easiest thing to do. And you know, the test for the leader is when they stand up and say no to people who are their supporters. And at that moment, you, you, I think you, you pivot to a different type of leadership. But you were accused when you first became leader of the Labour Party of being quite populist and, and saying to people what they would want to hear. I mean, do you, do you, is that a fair assessment of where you were, say, 94 to 97? And did you change as a leader, do you think? Yeah, no, I think it's a fair assessment, and it did change. But, it, I mean, you know, my, my excuse in a sense was, you know, after 18 years, I was quite keen to, to please all of the people all of the time. <laughs> um, and by the end of the time I left, I wasn't sure I was pleasing any of the people any of the time. But, but it's... It, you know, that, that is, that's what, where you have to graduate to, you know, especially if you become the leader of, of a country because the decisions are important and in the end what you owe people, your responsibility is to do what you think is right. What, you may be wrong, by the way, but you should do what you think is right. And I think today in politics as well, when I first came in in 1997, in economic and in international policy terms... Um, the answers seem pretty clear. You know, in economic terms, you ran basically a, um, a fairly liberal market economy. You know, you took the decisions as we talk about Bank of England independence and so on. You, you kept to basic fiscal rules. The things seemed to run along pretty well. Okay, that was the international economy. And in international policy, it was the end of the Cold War. Um, you know, you had, you had a, a new world order, as you thought, emerging. You've got to be careful saying that online, man. <laughs> the new world order. Like, the fact that you've said that now, when this goes out as a podcast, we'll just have like, a million conspiracy theorists going crackers. It's sort of David Icke. You're going to unlock now. Well, I mean, a lot of people are going to download this as a result, which is great. But, you know, the, the fact that you've... you've, you've never, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you on, on such an important train of thought, but... No, no, go right ahead. I'm sure you... <laughs> I'm sure you got a lot of insights. <laughs> when it comes to sort of conspiracy, I'm about to give you my big theory of politics. How, in terms of conspiracy theories and things about about events on, on numerous levels, just. I mean, I'm sure there's no Illuminati and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but just for the benefit of the tape, 
in terms of this sort of idea that, you know, the people have, and I, it's obviously not shared by me, but some people sort of do believe that there is a sort of elite, the Bilderberg group and all that sort of nonsense, and, 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 which genuinely exists, but this idea that sort of life is out of the public's hands and there's nothing they can do to affect it. Do you think there's any truth to that, that they're just a very narrow band of powerful people that control... Yeah, that is just total rubbish. I mean, honestly, it's... Yeah, I thought so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's not... By the way, if there was some actual governing conspiracy, um, you know, well, it might be quite a good idea if it was the right conspiracy, but if, if there was... To have some... No, sorry, I know. I mean, I know. I'm, just, I'm just trying to up the listening figures, but... Um, no, there, there, is, there is no... It's not the way modern politics can work, by the way, and it's never worked like that. And one of the things, you know, you often have this conversation with people about the American system, and they say, you know, there's, there's the American system thinks this, or the American system, the American system thinks lots of different things at the same time, um, usually in divergent from each other. So, you know, what there is at a, at a top international level, obviously, is you, you decide policy with people. But in today's world, in any event, if there were some great conspiracy, you'd never keep it quiet for a minute. I mean, I used to, you used to have to deal with these conspiracy theories all the time when you were in government. And it's, it's a distraction from accepting politics for what it is, which is actually a hard business of decision-taking in circumstances where either choice may be difficult. And because people don't want to accept that, they want to say, well, you know, the, this conspiracy has driven people this way, or there's this easy answer. You know, what I was <laughs> going to say was... You know, what in 97 seemed simple, post 9-11 and then post the financial crisis is suddenly really tough. And the, the, the answers are tough. And so when political leaders are falling short, it's not because they're bad people. It's because they are ordinary human beings in extraordinary circumstances, trying to decide what's, what's right most of the time. I mean, sure, there's self-interest and vested interests and so on, but most people I know who go into politics go in basically because they're trying to make the world better and and if they if they take decisions that are wrong or, or you don't agree with it's it's not necessarily because they're badly motivated it just could be because they see the world differently of all those decisions of yours that, that probably best encapsulates that that uh, that principle is is Iraq uh, and, and the judgment that you faced for it since um, there's a lot of pressure on you at the moment, obviously, with, with Chilcott coming up to sort of make some sort of apology. Or Do you, do you feel any sort of pressure to, to change what you've said in the past now? No, I don't feel pressure to do that, but I, I understand there's you know, powerful disagreements about what I did, but that is a classic example of what I'm talking about, which is in the end you, you take a decision and you take it on the basis of which you think it's right. And I think particularly when you're dealing with issues of, of war and peace, that is your obligation. And if people disagree with you, it's their right, by the way, to put you out of government. Um, but I think when it comes to those big, literally life and death decisions, you've got to do what you instinctively feel to be correct. And I think as you can see now with the whole range of decisions over Syria, these things are incredibly difficult and very unpredictable. Because that's the other thing. Uh, up until 9-11, things were reasonably predictable in foreign policy terms. You know, that you may have problems in one part of the world or another. But since then, and since everything that's happened um, from that moment, you know, those decisions and the decisions now that leaders are taking, they're difficult. 
But in terms of the personal pressure on you at the time to, to make the right decision, whatever that is, did you feel that acutely around the time? Of course, that? absolutely, because you, you're, you're conscious that, that people's lives depend on it. So, yeah, absolutely. You, 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 I mean, that is where you have to, I think, un unless there's something really, um, you know, really wrong with your approach to the whole job, it's at moments like that you have got to do what you think is right. And as I say, if people then disagree with you afterwards, it's their right to put you out. I mean, that's, that's democracy. But I don't, you know, there are lots of issues in politics where you can trim and, you know, swerve and maneuver and so on. But when it comes to those types of decisions, and especially when they're binary, you, you've got to do what you think is right. How do you deal with then the, the, the legacy, not so much of uh, Iraq as a country, but the legacy in terms of your reputation? Uh, and the, the tone in which the opposition is now framing things, um, does that affect you personally? Well, it's not pleasant when you're abused personally, but on the other hand, I think when you do one of these jobs, you've got to come to the following type of um, um, position in your own mind, really, uh, which is to say it's an enormous privilege to have done a job like that. I was Prime Minister for 10 years. It's a huge privilege to do it. Um, you do it to the best of your ability. People can make their judgments upon it. Um, but in the end, you, should, you shouldn't get so upset by criticism or abuse that you don't recognize the great privilege that you've had in doing it. And I think you just, you've, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing with politics. When, when you get to the very top, um, and, you know, politicians even more than most normal people, as it were, um, you know, like to be liked. Um, but when you get to the very top, and especially if you stay there for any real length of time, you realize that's not possible. So in the end, you, you've got to, as I say, you've got to be content within yourself that you did the job to the best of your ability. And then think, well, okay, there may be all this criticism and abuse, but on the other hand, what a privilege it is to have, to have been there and to, to have... Um, had the honour of leading your country. But with, with Chilcock coming out whenever it does, um, do you, does part of you think, oh, God, I'm going to have to go through all this all over again? Um, no, I think <clears throat> most of me thinks it's an opportunity to, to also to set the record straight and to make arguments. So at this stage, I mean, obviously you can't preempt the inquiry, but feel free to. If you... <laughs> um, <laughs> are, you, <laughs> are you sort of broadly aware of what he's going to say about yeah. Um, I don't, it's probably best not to get into that <laughs> support at all. So, you know, because it's, it, they've got to make their judgments and let's wait and see what they are. In terms, uh, and you, you mentioned Syria there, and this is the sort of big issue of the day, and I think it'd be sort of interesting to pick your brains about it. What is your view then of, of how Britain should approach Syria now? Well, I would support the position that's been set out, not just by David Cameron, but by many um, Labour MPs, I think it's important that we take strong action against ISIS and take that action um, against them where they're headquartered, which is in Syria. So um, obviously I would support that. But um, you know, this is a long, going to be a long, hard struggle, not just against ISIS in, in Syria, but you've got, you know, you've got ISIS, you've got Jabhat al-Nusra, you've got al-Qaeda, uh, you've got al-Shabaab, you've got Boko Haram, you've got these groups that have proliferated all over the world. And this is the biggest security challenge of the 21st century, for sure. Um, and it's gonna take a long time to defeat it, and you have to defeat a number of different levels. 
And one of the things I do in my um, post-prime ministerial life is my foundation um, actually tracks um, the interaction between religion and extremism. And so we have a center for religion geopolitics that every day publishes and tracks what's happening across the world on this issue. And it's a global threat today. Just in terms of Syria, and I don't want to dwell on it too long, but I think a lot of people would support action against ISIS. A lot of people would say but Assad needs some form of uh, action as well. I mean, in terms of British intervention, would it be purely airstrikes on ISIS, do you think, or, or should there be some sort of military intervention towards Assad? Well, the, the issue in respect of, of Assad is whether um, he is going to be uh, forced out over a period of time um, because the majority of people in the country who have been excluded from government and who've now been subject to this absolutely brutal campaign where over 300,000 people have lost their lives and roughly 10 million people have been displaced, you're going to have to come to a, um, a settlement over Syria that even if there may be a transitional period, ends up with a new constitution and a new, dis um, a new government within the country because otherwise it won't be acceptable to the people there. So we've also got, if you want to, to exercise influence in that regard, you've also got to be prepared to, to be committed there too. Do you ever, I mean, I know you're a man of faith and it was, you know, Alistair Campbell famously said that you don't do God, but... Um, I don't think he works for you anymore, so presumably it's fine. Um, <laughs> do you ever have your faith tested by the sort of events that you see in Paris or by any, any other sort of atrocity? No, because I think religion throughout the, the ages has always had the capacity to do great good or do great evil. And, you know, the Christianity went through a period when it was slaughtering people in the, in the, um, in the name of, of Jesus Christ. So it, it's, this is not... You know, religion has always had that capability. Now, what I often argue against people who are sort of anti-religious is to say, but so have secular ideologies, um, communism and fascism, uh, caused millions of deaths in the, in the 20th century. But religion's always had that, you know, but there's also people who their religion um, inspires them to do acts of enormous human compassion. So what you should never do, though, I think, is politicize religion. And I believe in a concept of faith that is open-minded, right? So that the key in the world today, where people of different faiths and cultures are coming together more than ever before, is that you are tolerant and respectful of difference, and you regard diversity as a strength. It's one of the reasons why I think it's so important in countries like ours that we're not, don't become anti-immigrant. Um, I mean, immigration has given this country enormous benefits. And actually, I think one of the great things about a city like London today is it's a multicultural city. It's proud of it. People get on together across the boundaries of faith and culture. And this is the way the world is. And I like that. I mean, I, I, so, um, Immigration is at the heart, not just of, to an extent, UKIP's appeal, but may well next year in the EU referendum play a major part in, in the debate on whether Britain stays or, or leaves the EU. Are you going to get involved in the campaign at all? Well, I, I'll, you know, I will get involved in it. Um, how much, I don't know. I mean, I'll get involved as much as it's helpful, as it were. But Knock, um, a, knock a few doors. <laughs> <laughs> that should be interesting. Um, um, but, you know, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's, one of these, it's one of these things where if we 
take a step back from the, any of the immediate concerns. And I think there will be a lot of concerns about the issue of refugees. Um, but if you take a step back, I mean, in the 21st century, for us to break apart from what is the largest political alliance and biggest commercial union in the world, I would be just, I mean, my, my view would be a very foolish and retrograde step for the country. So I think it's important we stay in there but, and, and argue our case for reform and change inside. Do you think, with, with the way, how much politics has changed just in the last year, that actually, um, when the Labour Party starts to reassess its position and people maybe reassess old rivalries, because Gordon Brown started to pop up once in a while, hasn't he? You know, he's popped up to the referendum and he popped up the other day. Um, is, there any, <laughs> is there any chance, do you think, that the two of you might sort of do some sort of some joint events to sort of try and heal the Labour Party or, or campaign to keep Britain in the EU? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't object to that at all, actually. Um, no, of course, I mean, I, despite all the differences and difficulties, I still have a huge um, respect for him. Um, and I think it, there is a moment when people should try and come together. Um, and it doesn't matter whether, you, you know, whatever the other issues are that you may disagree about, this is, this is going to be one of the biggest decisions this country's taken um, in the last half century. But have recent events sort of maybe made you rethink your relationship with Gordon? Has actually not been that <laughs> different? Or is it, is it, in a bizarre way, is the, the situation the Labour Party is in sort of quite healing for Blairites and Brownites, do you think? I mean, it should be, in, in the sense that there's obviously such a, a huge challenge to make the Labour Party electable again, and it should bring people together from whatever previous quarter they were in. <laughs> Do you ever chat to each other, email or text or anything like that? Um, no, I talk to him from time to time and, and see him from time to time. But, um, you know, he's, he's very busy with what he's doing. I'm busy with what I'm doing, I guess. But, but I, I've got no, I, I would not, of course not. If there's, if there's a common cause to be made on something we both believe in, why not? And, you know, you shouldn't also, I don't, I, I don't really, I think with politics... It, it, it does create these incredible tensions, but sometimes, you know, when when you take a step back, you see they're not. You know, you shouldn't allow them to 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 contaminate a personal relationship or a personal regard, even if you have that disagreement. Because you were you were mates for years. Yeah, you came at the same time. You shared an office. Like do you sometimes. I mean, there are people I've worked with when I thought, I shouldn't have fallen out with him. Like, do you ever sit there and think, <laughs> maybe I'll just pick up the phone and maybe ask Gordon if he fancies going for a pint or something like that? Well, it's not quite like that. But, <laughs> um, uh, but no, we were very close. And he taught me an enormous amount about politics, actually. Um, a huge amount. And I, I learned a lot from him. And, and actually, our intellectual cooperation in the 80s, because we spent, we used to spend hours and days together drafting, redrafting, thinking through things. It's a really important thing to be able to do. The only advantage of opposition is it gives you space and time to think. And, and you know, one of the things, if I was in the Labour Party and a you know, younger person in the Labour Party today, I would be spending a lot of my time just thinking through what are the right answers. Because one thing that allowed us to get into power and then to, to, to win those elections was that we had an intellectual orientation that had been worked out over a long period of time. And you need to do that. I mean, politics at a certain, le- a certain level is a very crude sort of business. At another level, it's, it's actually very, um, it's quite intellectual. You know, and these issues are difficult to resolve. 
You know, it's one of the things I've, I think um, people don't sufficiently understand about the business of government and politics is that the answers to the questions are difficult and you're having to decide those answers in an atmosphere, particularly today with social media, which is really, it's like a wall of noise that you're dealing with the whole time. And people, I think, find it very, um, you, you know, very disorienting. Because when I was starting in politics, right, 10,000 people thought something or wrote something. You think, God, oh, I'm part of a movement here, right? Nowadays, you get hundreds of thousands of people coming to a particular position. And I think people get quite disoriented by it. Um, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily, you see, so 400,000 people think something, that could represent 40 million, it could represent 4 million, or actually it could represent just over 400,000. Now, which of those things it is, is really important to know. But if you're in that 400,000 group, you're, you're thinking, my God, the, the world's been cha changed by me. So in terms of social media, it's interesting you mention that, because your offices are on, on social media, but as far as I'm aware, you don't have a personal sort of Twitter account or something like that. Is it something you've considered? Briefly. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's partly. No, I, I do sometimes think I should do it, but on the other hand, once you start it, you've got to carry on. And then, you know, frankly, if you're me, you'll get a certain amount of, let's say, traffic. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't. <laughs> you know, I was, but, you know, people, uh, it, it shouldn't really, I mean, that's not really the reason for not doing it. It's just a question of the discipline, the time. But, you know, you were asking about criticism earlier, and I know because one of my. Um, my son Ewan is here tonight and, and I always remember when <clears throat> in the 2005 election campaign and, and um, we you know my, my two sons Ewan and Nicky my older sons actually rather surprised and, and <clears throat> delighted me by saying they would come out canvassing and they went out into a sort of you know marginal area and uh, they were going down the street and knocking on doors and I, I was somewhere else in the city centre or something and um, anyway um, my son Dickie knocks, knocks on this door and this guy sort of opens the door and he, he you know he just starts a volley of abuse about that Tony Blair I hate him I can't stand him he's the word you know etc he just goes through the whole thing so anyway Dickie's sort of you know, alright so the door slams he, he goes down he sees you and further down the street and he says to him um, Ewan, you should go and knock on number 18. <laughs> You're a big fan of dads. He's like, I'll cheer you up. <laughs> so, you can go down and say, oh, that's good. So he knocks on this door, and the guy sees another level. And so it's an even greater volume of abuse comes in. And Ewan is a little more sensitive than uh, Nicky on these things. Finally says to him, um, yeah, that's my dad you're talking about there. <laughs> And the guy says, oh, I'm really sorry, son. Come and have a cup of tea. <laughs> you know, and it's that, you know, but most, I think the thing about, the thing is with all of, all of this is that you've got to, you've got to trust people at a profound level, right? And what that means in the social media era is trusting people and not measuring it just by the noise, right? Because the people who shout loudest don't necessarily deserve to be heard most. Now, that's a big lesson in politics, which people have to learn over time. And therefore, even when that wall of noise is kind of disorienting you, you've got to try and keep it to the side of you and focus 
on what you really think is right for people and your instincts about where, you know, what I call real people, most of whom don't come voice off their opinions with great um, vigour at the first person they see. <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, right, we'll take some questions now from the audience. So I'm sure we're going to have plenty. If we can ask for one sentence questions and one sentence answers, if that's okay. So we can just get around as many as possible because I, I realise it's special. Can have the uh, house lights up, please? Tris will come round with uh, a microphone. Could just have the house lights up. Uh, that would help so we can see people. Um, and hands up. Yes, there's a fellow down here at the front. And just let us know your name and uh, the question. Hello, my name's Russell. Um, can you see me? Um, your position as a Middle East envoy, what, what achievements, if any, have you made? <laughs> yeah, good, good point. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, one sentence? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I kept my own optimism at least alive. <laughs> now, my wife said to me, you know, I, I, um, when I go back there, which I will be, I'll be back there again in, in Jerusalem on Friday, and this will be my 150th visit since leaving office. And then she said to me, yeah, but it's not the number of visits you make, it's the progress that counts. <laughs> there hasn't been a, a lot, but by the way, there will be and there should be. And the key to it today, in my view, is cooperation between the Israelis and the Arabs. The truth is they've got many... Um, interests in common in the region right now and I think if we are imaginative with all the changes happening in the region this is the right moment to drive forward the two-state solution so I'm going to end by the way doesn't matter how difficult it is I'm going to keep going at it so thank you, thank you. Thank you. Hi you said um, as Prime Minister you had to work with the American President how would you work with President Trump? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God, these are sharp questions. <laughs> I've got President Trump and Captain Kink. <laughs> the great slapstick duos. <laughs> by, the, by the way, if he was elected, you'd have to, but I, I think this will not happen, in my view. Um, because I think ultimately, you know, the, the one thing about that American process is that it takes a long time and you kind of think in the end that the more sensible people in the Republican Party will, will prevail. But, you know, it, it's, um, but it's a, it is a good question because if that's what happens, that's what happens and you have to work with it. But I, I think this is an unlikely scenario. <laughs> OK, yes, the chap in the middle. <laughs> um, I get the sense that a lot of time the people in the UK and around the world probably know you for foreign policy things. Um, but I get a sense that you're probably, when you look back on your time in the UK, uh, you're more worried about what you did domestically. What was your greatest achievement domestically in terms of policy around education, health, that sort of thing? What did you really achieve doing that? Right, I mean, I think the Northern Ireland peace process is important in uh, UK terms. Um, I think the education reforms were, were an important part of what, what we did, and I... I think, you know, having experienced and seen myself London schooling, I think it has significantly improved over, um, over those years. Um, so that was important. I think the minimum wage was important. Um, and I think, you know, there are a whole series of changes we make. I think of, for example, things like civil partnerships, where when I was first coming into politics, you know, that would have been seen as completely lunatic type of politics. And now it's part of the consensus. And, you know, I, I think there is a certain changes that we brought about because we were able to govern over time 
that then impacted even the, the Conservative Party. So, yeah. No, I, I agree. I, 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 think, I, think, I think it made a huge difference coming in and made a huge difference. So. Thank you. Yes, the chap at the back. Well, I think he's from the Free United Kingdom Party. Yeah. <laughs> we disbanded. <laughs> you only got me 318 votes. <laughs> it's in the place, it's in the place. Um, uh, well, you touched on it earlier. Um, do you have any advice for any Prime Minister perhaps dealing with uh, an ambitious Chancellor? <laughs> <laughs> Probably hang on in there as long as he can. <laughs> but by the way, it's never, I mean, I, you know, it's not a, an ignoble ambition to, be, to want to be prime minister. So that's part of politics. Hi, I just wanted to ask a question about, as a Labour member, I'm a bit depressed about 2020. What do you think Jeremy Corbyn, or indeed the party, needs to do to get back in power? Um, it needs to um, understand the modern world. Uh, as it really is, um, it needs to realise that the Labour Party, um, at its best, has always been a project for social justice, but a project that is a modernising project, um, that is taking the country forward. And it's, it's got to have the... It, it's got to have the, the... As I said earlier, it's got to have the discipline to be prepared to to take the decisions necessary to put ourselves in the position, both in terms of policy and, and how we are and seem as a political party that chime with, with the instincts and aspirations of the people. And, you know, the Labour Party, if it, it's not, you know, we, we, we got into this position in the 1980s and when I became leader and we'd had these four election defeats where people, people used to think there's some bizarre reason why we can't win. Maybe we just can't win. I mean, it's just impossible. And it's, it was always nonsense. It was perfectly possible, provided we realized that the problem the British people usually has with the Labour Party is not whether it believes in social justice and in a more caring and fairer society. Most people understand that's what the Labour Party's about, and most people believe that's what the Labour Party's about. Their worry is always on the other side of the ledger. Are you going to be tough enough, smart enough? Are you going to take the difficult decisions? And are you going to understand how the world's changed? And this is why it's so important today for the Labour Party. What I would do is I'd spend an enormous amount of thought time. You know, do you, you know we mentioned technology earlier. This whole new generation of technology around big data and so on, maybe even artificial intelligence, other things, it's going to transform the world of work. It's going to completely revolutionize the world of work. We've got to have the answers to that. You know, so that's what we should be doing. We should be thinking. But, you know, thinking is a far more difficult and profound activity than just dusting off an old resolution from the 1980s and passing it and thinking we've created anything because, in fact, all we've created is our own illusion. So this is why it's really, really important, I think, today. I don't... And by the way, I would never get depressed about the Labour Party in that sense. I'm sure there's enough vigor and determination within it to overcome this situation. But we've got to be real, really, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm in there. I'm battling away. <laughs> um, you know, we've got to, we just, 
it, it makes me frustrated when we, we don't understand that if, if you want to grasp that political prize of being able to govern the country, you've got to have the, the wherewithal, the courage, the vision, the creativity to do what is not just right, but right even in difficult circumstances and right in the modern world as it is, not the world as you might want it to be. So that is the, the key, and you've got to recognize that to do that, you've got to build a political coalition, which is there. You know, the political coalition is not difficult. There are lots of people who want, they want to properly run economy, they want a government that, is, that looks after the business and enterprise sector, but is also committed to social justice, committed to change, committed to bringing about a fairer and more free society. Look, this is what the Labour Party has always been about when it's won, and it'll be about this when it next wins. And the question is, how long does it take to get from here to there? Longer than one sentence. No, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> are there any other people around here that like to ask questions? Just the lady at the front. Can the Labour Party ever win when there's a right-wing media? Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, look, it's the, 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 the media is often biased against the Labour Party, it's true. But it always has been. Um, and, you know, the media don't always have the power that we give to them. Or maybe they have only the power that we give to them. So if we are prepared to think for ourselves, and I think a lot of, I think most people are ultimately, I think the, the hosti hostility of the media is a problem, but it should never be a disability. Okay, are there any people up on the balcony? I need the house lights on the balcony, please, because I can't see through the... Uh... Oh, there's a balcony, right. Oh, there's a balcony. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there anyone up there that would like to ask questions? Was that you there? Yeah. People are going to have to indicate clearly. I can't see. Was there anyone on the balcony? That... Can we just have the house lights on the balcony, please? Is that all right? Because I can't see people. I don't want people to lose out. Is there anyone up there that... Just yell if you would like to. <coughs> yeah? So we we'll get a microphone up there. There is a phone up there. It's... Is there a position where... Just, hold, just wait for the microphone. Oh, there we go. Hello. Cheers. Hi. Um, with the renewal of Trident, is there a position you would have seen where you would have pushed that big button? <laughs> <laughs> that is actually genuinely a question you should never answer. Um, but I fortunately would never came, came into a situation where that was ever likely to, to happen. And, I hope to goodness it doesn't, but the essence of a deterrence is that that, that uncertainty is always there. But would Captain Kink request <laughs> <laughs> this special big button? He had, <laughs> he had other weapons at his disposal. <laughs> I can't think of a better note to end on. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you've all been absolutely superb. Um, every month we try and bring you the, uh, the best guests that we possibly can. And I, I really respect the fact that people here will have had different ideological opinions, different personal beliefs. Uh, and as always, you, you've been a fantastic audience in listening to someone uh, and, and showing them the utmost respect. It's really important for, just for the sake of this night and for politics in general that people are heard in this manner. So I really, really appreciate you all being on board. I'm really sorry I couldn't announce that it was Tony before tonight. I hope you understand that. And in future, whenever that's the case, it's because we do have a special guest. Tony's agreed to do this annually now, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. You've been a very kind audience. Ladies and gentlemen,
Well, there you go. The captain himself. <laughs> um, I'd heard that he'd done stand-up before. I had no idea. I mean, I don't think his family had any idea he'd done comedy before, let alone as <laughs> been Captain Kink. Just incredible. Um, his Berlusconi impression was amazing as well. Uh, but it's just those, it's those moments as well when you're sat opposite someone who has made the decisions that so many of us have talked about. Even when I've interviewed other people on the political party, people like Anastasia Campbell or Jack Straw, particularly when you're dealing with Iraq, you actually sat opposite the man that ultimately had to, <clears throat> ultimately had to take the decision. And his explanation of leadership and what leadership is. Um, just so... One of his great skills is being able to encapsulate things, I think, very simply, to take quite complex ideas and explain them and make them sound reasonable. There is a, there is a manner in which he talks that just makes everything sound so eminently sensible and calm. And that actually, I think, was my abiding, quite apart from the sort of mayhem at times uh, on the night. It's just he has a, 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 an inherent sense of calm. There is something naturally very calming about him. In the, in the way that he approaches politics, and the, he's a natural healer, I think, um, in the way that he's able to disagree with people and not be rude or disrespectful or um, nasty. Um, so for all the talk of the kind of politics, and I don't think there was anything that he ever um, explicitly um, tried to pursue uh, under any sort of banner, actually. Um, I think he had a demonstration of it uh, right there. Um, thank you so much for downloading this uh, this brings us uh, to the end of the third year it, I mean it's flown by and three years obviously isn't that long anyway but uh, it has been um, so far just amazing the next three guests are, are top class as well John Burko in January Liz Kendall in February Jacob Rees Mogg in March the shows do now sell out very very quickly um, and after this probably will sell out um, even quicker and I'm really keen that people who... I speak to a lot of people who really want to come, but the moment the tickets go on, on sale, they're gone sometimes. Uh, and I know that frustrates a lot of people, but the room only has a certain capacity, and I, I try and get as many people in as I can. Um, so just check my Twitter, and more to the point, check the St James's Theatre website, stjamestheatre.co.uk, as often as you can to try and try and get in there and, and book in advance as, as much as you can to, to ensure that you're there. But um, thanks to everyone who was there on the night. Obviously, it was very special. And thank you for downloading this and for sharing it. And every time someone tweets me and says how much they enjoy it and what a thrill it was, or just little specific things that they've enjoyed, it, it always makes my day. So thank you for all of that. And just thank you for listening to it. And I think it's important that politicians are given this sort of platform. And I don't think it exists anywhere else, which is a real thrill for me. Um, so, thank you. Um, I know it's a bit early to say Merry Christmas, but a lot of people listen to these, you know, a year later. So, Merry Christmas for last year. And, um, yeah, just thanks. What a cool night.